0: An expanding media landscape hungry for stories ripped from the headlines had plenty of material to feed on. From religious paranoia to elaborate poison plots. No, it's not podcasting, it's the theatre of early modern England. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Lucy, and on this episode, I'll be discussing the sensational crimes and even more sensational plays of 16th and 17th century England. With me as guest co-host is Dr. Rachel Clark. Hello. Rachel, can I ask you to say a little bit about what your research and teaching work involves when you're not guest hosting on podcasts? Yes,
1: I teach British literature, all of it, but my area of research specialty is early modern England. Specifically, I do disability studies, and my current research focuses on witchcraft and disability in the early modern Atlantic world.
0: Great. So now our listeners know why I've invited Rachel on here. Full disclosure, in addition to being a scholar of early modern theater, witchcraft, and disability, Rachel is also my girlfriend. And this also partially explains the origins for this episode which can be traced back to when I was stealthily texting Rachel during a conference panel about unhinged plays. I am particularly interested by how these plays brought not only contemporary debates, but even very recent local events onto the stage. Rachel, I know you wanted to start off by introducing our listeners to the late Lancashire witches.
1: Yes. Okay, so the first thing you need to know about early modern plays is that all of them are unhinged in one way or another. The ones based on true crime are some of the most unhinged. The late Lancashire Witches was published in 1634 when witches from Lancashire were being questioned in London. They had already been convicted in Lancashire, but they and their accusers were sent to London for further questioning by the King's Privy Council. So while they're there in London, first in prison and then housed at the Ship Tavern in Greenwich, the playwright Thomas Haywood wrote this play. Heywood was super prolific, but people just don't know about him because Shakespeare monopolizes everything. So he writes the late Lancashire witches, and when we say late here, we don't mean they're dead, but that this happened recently. So even the title advertises how current this is. There are devils, there's dancing, a witch takes the form of a cat and has her hand cut off while in cat form. It's totally wild. And amazingly, we have a surviving letter about the play, written by Nathaniel Tompkins. He provides a detailed description, which we've linked in the show notes, but here's my favorite bit. This is his ultimate opinion of the play. Quote, And though there be not in it, to my understanding, any poetical genius, or art, or language, or judgment to state or tenet of witches, which I expected, or application to virtue, but full of ribaldry and of things improbable and impossible. Yet in respect of the newness of the subject, the witches being still visible and in prison here, and in regard it consisteth from the beginning to the end of odd passages and fopperies to provoke laughter, and is mixed with diverse songs and dances, it passeth for a merry and excellent new play. So by the time Tompkins wrote this, actually the witches weren't imprisoned any longer, but his point remains. It would have been perfectly possible for someone to go see the witches in the morning and then go see the play, The Late Lancashire Witches, on stage in the afternoon. And this illustrates just how freshly ripped from the headlines true crime drama could be. I feel as though a lot of people perceive pre-cable or pre-telegraph news as automatically slow news, everything taking forever. But nope, not in early modern London. People need to know. The hand press still managed to be incredibly on top of things.
0: This is something really important about early modern news culture, I think, and something often overlooked. Harold Schechter, true crime author and retired professor of American literature, claims that no sooner had Gutenberg invented movable type than enterprising printers began churning out graphically violent murder ballads. This is, admittedly, an exaggeration. The printing press doesn't magically make books cheap, people literate, or textual literacy necessary for more jobs. And that's a big difference between how textual literacy worked in early modern Europe and how it works in many societies today. Still, printing technology does change expectations of narrative, even for a public that is still primarily a hearing rather than a reading public at the time we are discussing. While the spread of the printing press does help to change the media landscape, I want to emphasize the continuities in the types of literacy that we see in the medieval and early modern worlds.
1: Yeah, so-called murder ballads were often printed on a single large sheet of paper called broadside And these often devoted a lot of space to woodcuts illustrating their contents. These woodcuts were customized, they were designed to broadcast the most important bits of the text. And these were not just available for cheap purposes, but pubs were often wallpapered with broadsides. This is extremely cool, of course, but also a reason why a lot of these cheaply printed records do not survive. You also see in this period, not just ballads, but murder pamphlets, which are short narratives about recent and famous murders. Not all the authors were out for the sensationalism. One, Henry Goodcole, was the chaplain of Newgate Prison, so he saw his authorship of murder pamphlets as contributing to society's moral health in ways similar to his work as the prison chaplain. He makes this explicit in his pamphlet about the so-called Witch of Edmonton, Elizabeth Sawyer, who was also the subject of a play,
0: which we will get to later. Goodcole critiqued others for telling stories about her in ways fitter for an ale bench than for a relation of proceeding in court of justice. Ideally, for authors of many sects, murder pamphlets and ballads should present narratives of divine providence intervening to punish the wicked, Obviously, this is not an expectation of our contemporary audiences and creators, but I tend to see the community as taking over for providence in contemporary narratives, whether as a collective of citizen sleuths or as represented by a plucky independent journalist. And this is a pattern I see as holding even in cases where corruption and bias are not significant factors. Also, like contemporary true crime narratives, The murder ballads, pamphlets, and plays that were lumping together as early modern true crime often make internal references to the tropes on which they draw, and similar narratives or crimes that their audiences might have as reference points. Arguably, one of the things contributing to early modern England's extremely active news culture was that the political and religious landscape was wildly complicated.
1: The kind of absolutely wild politics that happen when an entire population is slightly drunk at all times.
0: I was going to say when the king suddenly decides to take the church in England out from under papal authority, leading to a lot of political and spiritual anxiety, but fair enough.
1: Well, by the time the heyday of English drama comes around in the 1590s, things are pretty settled. Elizabeth I, good Queen Bess, has decided on policies of compromise, so while there's still a lot of Catholic and anti-Catholic controversy, there's not a lot of active political
0: upheaval at this point. I stand corrected, thank you. Alongside the enduring debates about religious observance and doctrine, there remained devout Catholics who found themselves politically suspect, and new sects like the Puritans who found themselves politically suspect for different reasons there's also the rise of what is called, and I am absolutely serious here, hot Protestantism. (laughs) Rachel, can you explain this for our listeners and also for me?
1: Yes. So the hot Protestants were very fervent Protestants. They were really intense. They wanted to reform the heck out of the Church of England. Also, I feel that it is really important for everyone to know that there is a book chapter called Hot Protestant Shakespeare. You're welcome. Anyway, hot Protestantism matters insofar as religious tensions make all drama more intense. Italians and Spaniards are always super shady in ways inseparable from their Catholicism.
0: In addition to all this, a lot of social norms around gender and class were changing. In short, there were lots of reasons for people to be stressed, even without taking into account the fact that many people were able to get more news in more ways. Then as now, a lot of news is scary and bad. Famine, plague, wars of religion. Some of this might sound familiar. And to analyze both this and the aspects of early modern English society that are very unfamiliar to us, theater makes a great starting point. We promised that this episode would feature true love, strong hate, and swift revenge, not just because we are children of the 80s, but because like that consummately perfect film, The Princess Bride, Early modern English drama has everything. Also, I think it's important to point out that plays drawing on true crime were not just lively performances, but, in the words of scholar Peter Lake, rumor drenched events. This analysis comes from his amazingly titled book, The Antichrist's Lewd Hat. One of the plays that initially piqued my interest was Arden of Faversham, written in 1592 and based on a lurid murder committed a few days' journey from London in Kent. Lake argues that it subverts narrative expectations through wily coyote nonsense.
1: There is so much wily coyote nonsense in that play. There’s a poisoned crucifix and so many failed murder attempts. And then at the end, the murderers are revealed because they dump the body in the snow, but then it quits snowing and their footsteps going back to the house are totally visible. Arden is probably the most famous example of a domestic tragedy, which differs from regular tragedy because it focuses on everyday people, the middling sorts, the working classes, rather than royalty or aristocracy. Talking about witch plays alongside domestic tragedies like Arden matters because to early modern people, witchcraft was just as real as murder, and witchcraft could be used to commit murder. Also, sometimes people accused of witchcraft pled guilty they believed they were witches. Then as now, there were people who believed deeply in witchcraft and people who were skeptical about it.
0: This pluralism, I think, is really important to highlight. It's easy to find contemporary examples of real or imagined crime being linked to ideas about witchcraft and demonic possession whether in Texas, Tennessee, or rural Canada. And while today there's often a link between such beliefs and religious paranoia, that's not necessarily the case in the 16th and 17th centuries. In both eras, trying to prevent or solve crime, supernatural or otherwise, is linked to attempts to control or at least understand a world that is perceived as unusually chaotic and unpredictable.
1: Speaking of the chaotic and unpredictable, revenge tragedy addresses the same problem. In revenge tragedies, the society and or its governing figures are so corrupt that no justice is possible. So a revenger, that's what they're called, revengers, not avengers like Marvel superheroes, experiences a terrible wrong and has no recourse but to exert vigilante justice. You can see why the revenge tragedies based on true stories all take place in foreign countries. You don't want to imply that England is so corrupt that human vengeance is necessary.
0: John Webster was arguably the preeminent author of revenge tragedy in Elizabethan and Jacobean England and will be known to viewers of Shakespearean love as the horrible child who loves violence. <laughs> yes. He's
1: f- most famous for two plays, The Duchess of Malfi and The White Devil. I want to talk about The White Devil, which is based on the true story of Vittoria Accoramboni, an Italian noblewoman murdered in 1585. Although the title page of the play calls her a courtesan, she was not one. Accoramboni, like her fictional counterpart, married the nephew of a cardinal. She then met the Duke of Bracciano, who fell so violently in love with her that he had her husband killed so that he could then marry her. When the Pope discovered what had happened, he had Accoramboni imprisoned on suspicion of having been an accomplice to the crime. However, that Pope died, at which point Accoramboni managed to get out of prison and marry Bracciano. After Bracciano died that same year, his first wife's family, the powerful Medicis, challenged the will he made that left all his private property to Accoramboni. When she refused to back down, the Medicis had her killed. Now, the historical E Coramboni may or may not have had anything to do with the murder of her husbands, plural, but Webster's play makes Vittoria Corambona an unscrupulous but ultimately sympathetic figure. One of the most remarkable scenes in the play is the scene in which Vittoria defends herself against charges of immorality. Although she is technically not on trial for her life, The play includes a series of formal trials in which she defends herself passionately and eloquently. But most wildly, there's murder via
0: portrait. Unhinged. Murder via portrait and its anti Catholic implications aside, I really like the ways in which this play brings the courtroom onto the stage, blending genre and fiction boundaries in ways similar to the late Lancashire Witches. This is one of the
1: features of plays based on true crime.
0: They often blend comedy and tragedy
1: courtroom drama, and village satire, and slapsticks, and body horror all together. And it's not just Webster who makes women accused of serious crimes into complex, interesting, and sympathetic figures. Take the play, The Witch of Edmonton.
0: Yes, this is a great example of how a single judicial incident, I'm a legal historian, so I get to say things like judicial incident, (laughs) gets turned into multiple kinds of true crime narrative. As we discussed earlier in the show, the subject of multiple murder pamphlets and ballads becoming so popular that Henry Goodcole accused the authors of these texts of exploiting human suffering for cheap entertainment, a criticism that has also been leveled against some contemporary true crime media and forums.
1: The accused woman was named Elizabeth Sawyer. In the play, she's always called Mother Sawyer. And Mother Sawyer is not at all the sort of caricatured villain that you might expect if you grew up on, say, Disney witches. When we first meet her, she gets this long speech about how she's poor and disabled and old and mistreated. Essentially, she says, if everyone calls me a witch, why shouldn't I become one? This suggests that witch is a socially constructed category to which people can be assigned without their consent. And this powerful idea dominates the portrayal of Mother Sawyer throughout the play, which is quite a sympathetic one. Also, her familiar is a black dog named Dog. He is not a very good boy, however, but rather the devil. Still, I think this is a play that reminds us that crime itself is a socially constructed concept. That is, what counts as crime changes across cultures and societies. Today's preoccupation with true crime narratives that center on murder in many ways continue the fascination that we have seen in the 16th century. Then, as now, however, all this focus on murder displaces attention from things like wage theft and other white-collar crimes that cause real harm without sensational violence.
0: This is one of the reasons, I think, that the phenomenon of true crime as a genre fascinates me. Another is that, as you and longtime listeners will know, I'm fascinated by detective fiction and its power to showcase multiple moral and social possibilities. Similar work of interrogating our priorities and principles is done, I think, by the best true crime narratives, both today and as you've shown in the case of The Witch of Edmonton and other plays on the early modern stage. This and all of our Footnoting History episodes are available captioned on our YouTube channel Special thanks to Wordberg College and their Journalism and Communication Department for letting us record this episode in their audio production studio. And thanks, as always, to all those who help support us via Ko-fi and Patreon. Until next time, remember, the best stories are in the footnotes.